0: So we are currently in a series in the book of First John, and, and just to kind of give an overview of the book, uh, the Apostle John is writing to a particular church that has been racked with conflict and division, so there were these false teachers that rose up within the church and they caused a church split, and so there's a ton of confusion around what is true, who, who is Jesus, what does it mean to truly believe and follow Christ, and what is false, what is fake? And so John is wanting to to, to establish these Christians in a true identity in Christ. He's wanting to cut through the confusion and help sort of give them their bearings back related to who Christ is and what is true. So he's writing to ensure that the church's identity is formed in truth, formed by genuine relationship to Christ. And in our passage this morning, as we're going to see, formed by love for God. Because what you love shapes your identity. Have you ever considered the way that this plays out in your life, how what you love will shape your identity? So those of you that know me, you've heard me talk about this, but growing up, most of my life, my identity was wrapped up in sports. Like, I loved sports growing up. I played every sport that I could. Later on in life, though, it became all about basketball. That was the sport that trumped all other sports. And so all other sports became about, hey, how does this get me in shape for basketball? How does this make me a better basketball player? And so I loved basketball. Like, I watched basketball on TV. I studied professional and college players. I understood plays. I played every chance I got. My mom paved part of our backyard and set up a hoop. Uh, Whenever it was nice out, my friends and I were playing. Like, that was life. I loved it. That was my identity. And experienced some level of success and had a good team in high school. Got, to, got a scholarship to a small college to play basketball. But then something, was, something funny happened when I got to college. First semester, jump on the team, and I hated it. Did not like the coach. Started to lose my love for the game. And you know what happens when you build your identity on something and now you no longer love it? Identity crisis. Who am I? What am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do with my time? And so my love, my desires begin to shift and I begin to find something else to build my identity on, something else that grabbed my heart, something else that I could love. And I found something my freshman year, punk rock music. Don't laugh. I was only 19. Come on. <laughs> but my, I, I started to like, hey, this is cool. Like, I want to learn about punk music. I want to learn to play guitar. So I started studying the genre. I, like, started listening to every band I could get my hands on. And I was like, I want to listen to, like, the indie stuff, the underground stuff. I don't want to be the poser, you know, stuff that's on the radio. Like, I want to be all in. And I completely changed the way I dressed. I went from, like, a dude who dressed kind of preppy American Eagle to wearing, like, the band T-shirts and the Dickies and the Chucks and studded belts. I got my ears pierced, got a few tattoos. I mean, like, I was all in. My entire identity became, I am this punk rock dude, I'm part of the scene, I'm in a punk band, and that was my college years. And so, what, what began to happen is that my identity became formed around something that I loved. Like, that is who I, how I saw myself, that is what I gave myself to. And so, for us, as we understand our identity formation, as we consider the ways that we both view ourselves and how we live our lives, key to this is what we love. Because I loved sports. I loved the activity. I loved all the good things that they brought. I loved the affirmation and the relationships. And it was the same thing for music. I loved the activity. I loved the identity. I loved the things that I got to do with that, and I loved the the relationships that it brought. Another way to think about this is that underneath identity formation, underneath the things that we love, there's a picture of the good life. Like there's something that we want, there's some meaning, purpose, uh, relationship, fulfillment, joy that we're after, and we see a particular identity, we see a particular thing, we're like, that's going to give it to me. That seems really great, that seems awesome, let me go after that, let me be that person, because I love what it offers And so we build our identity around things that we believe are going to give us the fulfillment, give us the identity, give us the good life that our hearts long for. And so love, desire, shapes identity. That's part of human formation. So let me ask the question, what is it for you? What is it that you love? What is it that you most love? What is it that is shaping your identity? What vision, what picture of the good life are you after that you're giving yourself to that's making you who you are, shaping your activity, shaping your desires, shaping your character? Because as our friend James K.A. Smith says, you are what you love. Like what you love determines who you are. And so it's an important question to answer when we consider what we love and what is shaping who we are. And this is John's point in our passage this morning. To make his point about love shaping our identity, he sets up this contrast. In verse 15, he writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there's two loves being contrasted. Love of the world and love of the Father. Two identities that are being created between the love of the world and the love of the Father. And so that's what I want to unpack for us this morning. I want us to consider an identity shaped by love for God versus an identity shaped by love of the world. Now let me tell you what I hope to accomplish this morning by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. This this is where my heart is for you all this morning For those of you that are in this room that say, hey, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, I know, I love Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, I want to encourage you in your identity. That's what John is doing, that's what the Word of God wants to do this morning, is encourage you and strengthen you in your identity and say, hey, this is who you are, and keep growing in that, keep being shaped by that. For those of you that maybe you say, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer in Christ, but I'm feeling really weak this morning, like I'm aware of my sin, I'm aware of my failure, I'm aware of all the ways that I blow it, and I want to encourage you as well. I want to remind you of who you are. I want to remind you who God says you are. I want to remind you of the power that you have, the love that you are wrapped in, so that you can be strong in the Lord and your love for Christ will deepen. For those of you here this morning, you don't know what you believe, or maybe you're sitting there and you, you acknowledge that you're, you're kind of faking it, or maybe you're just, you are, you're, you're a skeptic. You're skeptical of Christianity. You're skeptical of the church but you wouldn't say, yeah, I'm all in with Jesus. Well, I want to hold up a vision. I want to hold up a picture of what it means to follow Christ, the beauty of that. And I want to contrast that with the implications of what it means to love the world and get underneath the surface of things. And my hope is that you will see a far more glorious, far more beautiful picture of the good life in Jesus Christ than anything this world can offer. Because there's a lot of Uh, glitz and glamour and doctored up images about what it means to love the world and the things of the world and on the surface it seems like that's all fine and dandy but underneath there's some very broken things that i think the word of god is going to expose for us this morning so that's my hope and by god's grace and his power we'll get there so let's reflect first on the picture that john has here for those shaped by love for god and so let, let's set the, this passage in the context of chapters 1 and 2. So as we've seen so far, chapters 1 and 2, John has largely been defining a contrast between what it means to truly follow God and follow Christ and believe in Christ and those who are faking it, those who are posing. And so he, he lays out a series of contrasts. It's like If you truly follow Christ, if you truly belong to Christ, here's what's true of you. One, you've been brought into relationship with God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. You've been brought into a loving relationship with them. You're known by them. They love you. You're in relationship, and that relationship is life-giving. Those who follow Christ walk in righteousness. They walk in the light because God is light. And part of that is confessing sin. We own it. Hey, look, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I can't fix myself. I can't save myself. And so we confess sin. We're humble. We acknowledge the reality of our sinfulness, but yet we experience salvation and grace through Jesus Christ. And because we walk in the light, because we're humbled by our own sinfulness and our own need for grace and mercy, we love other people. Like we're defined by love, we're defined by forgiveness, we're defined by mercy and grace because we want to extend the same love that we've experienced. And so John says, hey, this is what it means to follow Christ. These are the marks of a believer. And if you deny that, whether with your words or with your life, there's a problem there's a disconnect. And so John is drawing these contrasts in order to paint with bright, bold colors so that these believers would know what is true and what is false. So they could identify false teachers and false teaching and say, no, that is not of Christ. That is not who I am. That's not who I'm called to be. And so after running through this series of contrasts, in verses 1 through 5 through two twelve, we come upon our passage for this morning, and John turns his direction directly to his audience to encourage them. And this makes sense if you think about it. Conflict has a way of creating confusion. And then when you start talking about who's a Christian and who's not, we start drawing lines in the sand about true belief and false belief, does that not create some doubt in your mind? I mean, even if you are a confident believer in Jesus, sometimes you, you kind of step back and go, wait, am I really part of the body of Christ? Do I really know Jesus? Am I really in? Like, Like that doubt can creep in. Questions can creep in. And then on top of that, the pain and the trial and the suffering and the confusion and broken relationships and all the other things that come crashing in that can cause us to doubt our faith. And so John's turning to his audience and he's looking right at them and saying, hey, I want to remind you of something. I want to tell you who you are. I want to strengthen you in your identity. In the line between who is true and who is false, hey, guess what? You're true. You know God. You're forgiven. You're loved. You're strong. You're overcoming the evil one. The word of God abides in you. He's looking right, looking them right in the eye and saying, Hey, all the things I'm describing, it's you. Be encouraged in that. That's your identity. But let me ask you: man, what beliefs? What pain, what trial, what doubt, what questions can cause you to miss or doubt or struggle with your identity in Christ? Like what things can break into your life that cause you to take a step back and go, I don't know, do I really belong? Am I really a part of this? Does God really love me? Am I really forgiven? Do I have the strength that I need to overcome the world and overcome evil? What are those things? What are those things that you need the word of God to come and break cut right through and remind you of who you are, remind you of who you are in Christ? And so John speaks these loving, powerful, poetic words of encouragement to believers, both them and us, to remind us of who we are. But it's not just that John is encouraging them. It's not just that John is reminding them of who they are. He's also holding up this picture of what it means to be a Christian so that this picture of the good life, this this image of what it means to follow Jesus is glorious and beautiful to them because he wants this identity to be precious to them. He wants this identity to grab their heart as someone holds up a piece of art A beautiful piece of art and wants your hearts and your affections and your eyes to look at that and go, that is beautiful. I want that. I want to experience that. He's doing that with the Christian life and saying, hey, look, I want you to desire this. I want you to chase after this identity. I want you to long for this over the world. And so he's holding up a picture. And so let's unpack what this picture is. Let's unpack what John both reminds us who we are in Christ but also wants to shine this beautiful light to cause you to love God more. So what he says in verse 12, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. If, you've, if you're familiar with the book of 1 John, he uses this term little children or dear children often. It's a term of endearment. Like John is an old man when he writes this and he's looking at this church as those who are his spiritual children and he loves them. It's like, you're my kids. You're, you're, you're the ones that I love. You're precious to me. And so this is a, this is a, a term of affection that John has for the church. And he's saying, I'm writing to you, those that I love, my children, because your sins are forgiven. Children, dearly loved ones, you're forgiven because of Christ. Full stop. You're forgiven Every sin that you have ever committed, every sin that you're currently committing, every sin that you will commit, forgiven in Jesus Christ. Does that make your heart sing? Does that stir anything in you? Does that move you in any way? Or is that just kind of old hat? Is that something that just, you're so familiar with that church lingo that you've actually lost touch of the experience of being forgiven, like have you ever have you ever been in debt in your life? I mean, let's say whether it be school debt or you were dumb with credit cards or, or whatever, and so you've experienced debt, and then you did everything you could to get out of debt. How did that make you feel? Like once you got out of debt and you saw, hey, I am no longer on the hook for any of that debt, did that not raise in your heart excitement? a sense of freedom, a sense of joy, a sense of, hey, let's go celebrate. Let's go spend some money. Here's here's my fear, church. Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, we use this lingo so much, we've lost touch of the powerful truth. Like, we get too calm about the fact that we've been forgiven. Like we get too calm the fact that every evil, vile, selfish thing that you and I have ever done and committed against one another through Jesus Christ and his blood has been forgiven. God doesn't hold it against you anymore. This should make our hearts sing. This should be something that causes us to look at the glory of God and say, yes, I want that. I want to experience that freedom. I want to experience that joy, that life, knowing that my sins, my failures, my brokenness is accounted for. It's I'm not on the hook anymore. So John is writing to them to remind them who they are in Christ and to give them a picture of a glorious life in Jesus. Because here's the wonderful truth of forgiven people, people who experience the grace of God, people who are in touch with the fact they've been forgiven. Forgiven people forgive others. Forgiven people are gracious with other people. Forgiven people are patient with other people. Forgiven people extend grace and mercy to other people. That's beautiful. That's powerful. If you've ever experienced that um, among friends and family, that is an amazing thing. That's the good life. That's a life of joy. That's a life of freedom. That's a life of deep relationship. That's a life where you don't have to pretend and perform and earn. And this is what Christ offers you. This is what Christ gives you for his name's sake. Then he tells them that they are in relationship with Christ, in relationship with God the Father. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know who, him who is from the beginning. I write to you, children. Because you know the Father. So, fathers is another label that he uses in this sort of poetic encouragement to the church. Our commentators aren't 100% in agreement whether fathers relates to literal fathers or maybe spiritual fathers. But what they believe is going on here is John is encouraging older people. So, whether they're older just by numerical age or older because they've been in the faith longer. But he's, he's kind of Signaling them out and saying, hey, I write to you because guess what? You know him who was from the beginning. This is in reference to Jesus. And he's encouraging him in that relationship, saying, hey, look, you know him. And those years that you have known him, that's something. Like, isn't, there, isn't there something special about a relationship that's been forged over time? A relationship that has depth and maturity, because it's been, let's lasted for a long time. I mean, one of the most beautiful things about when you meet someone who's been married for like 60 years, you think, wow, that relationship is deep. That relationship has a maturity to it because it's long. That's what John is highlighting here. He's saying, you who are older, be encouraged. Your years, you know the Father. You know him who's from the beginning. And there's a depth there. There's a maturity there. That's your identity. Celebrate that. Live in the good of that. And it's something that we should desire. Like to have that kind of relationship with the Lord. To realize that in Jesus Christ, God the Father has brought you into a relationship with him. He looks at you and he loves you. He accepts you. He says, you're mine. You're my child. You belong to me. And I have nothing but love for you. And to experience that relationship for such a long time that you become, you rest in it, you're confident in it, like you just know, man, my, my father loves me. Like I've experienced trial, I've experienced suffering, I've experienced sin and pain, and all of that, he's been faithful and he loves me. And after all these years, I can say I know him. And that has transformed my life. I don't have to run after acceptance from other people. I don't have to perform for my father. I don't, I don't have to try to earn his love and his favor because after all these years, I know what it means to be loved. That's what John is holding out for them. That's saying, he's reminding them who they are and reminding them of the experience that God is inviting them into and the love that he's inviting them into. And he's holding that up and saying, hey, this is the good life. Let that beautiful thing cause you to love God even more when you see his love for you. Then he calls them strong, and he says they're overcomers. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now again, this label of young men could be talking about those who are young in age, or those who are young in the faith. But more than likely, he's talking to those who are young and have a, a, a level of energy A youthfulness about them. And he's saying, hey, I'm writing to you because you're you're young and you're strong and you're overcoming the evil one. And there's something beautiful. Those of us who are younger, I don't really know how to define that line right now. I mean, I'm pushing 40 and so I'm I'm in a really confused state about if I'm young or not. (laughs) But there's something about that youthful energy for God to come and say, hey, guess what? You're strong. Use that energy for my glory. Use your strength for good. Use your strength to push back on the darkness and the evil in this world. Use your strength to declare the kingdom of God and step into places of darkness and love and serve and sacrifice. And guess what? That strength that you have comes from me, comes from the Lord. It's coming from not yourself, not your own ability, not your own intellect, not even your own youthful energy, but from the Spirit of God who strengthens you and calls you to step into places of darkness. Because here's what we face. We face our own sin, right? I mean, if we're honest, we know the brokenness in our own heart. We know our own weakness. We know the ways that we can fall apart. But there is also evil in this world. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk about the devil and more about this and evil in this world. But there is an evil in this world that is perpetuating injustice and wickedness. It's not just us that's the problem. There is an evil one that we have to combat. And God gives us strength not only to overcome our own sin, but the evil one himself. Like Satan, the embodiment of evil, the deceiver, the one who has opposed God from the beginning. God gives you the strength to overcome even him. This is who you are. This is what empowers you to step into this world as a light and love And fight for justice and mercy and righteousness. This is who we are, church. This is who God calls us to be. You are strong. You may not feel strong. You may be sitting in your seat going, I am anything but strong. But let the Word of God remind you because the Word abides in you, because the Spirit abides in you, because you belong to the Father, because you've been set free and you're forgiven. You are strong. You are strong in the Lord. You're strong in the strength that he provides. And so you can overcome sin. You can grow in godliness. You can walk in the light. You can step into the world and be a source of righteousness and justice and peace and godliness. You can serve and you can sacrifice and give your life away that others may flourish and the kingdom of God may advance. That's who you are. That's the picture of the good life God holds up for you to give your life away to something far greater than just gaining money and possessions and wealth and pleasure. And so let that image, let that view of the good life cause you to love God more, to to desire that and be shaped by that. And so this is what John holds out for us is what it means to be shaped by love of God in contrast... He's going to talk about now what it means to be shaped by the love for the world and so he says in verse 15 do not love the world or the things in the world now if you're familiar with scripture this may seem a little weird because john wrote this but he also wrote probably the most famous passage in scripture john three sixteen, for god so loved the world that he gave his son so john says here do not love the world but there he says god loved the world what's going on well If you look at both the letters of John and the gospel that he writes, he uses the world in different ways. Sometimes the world is in reference to people, the population, the fallen humanity, those of us that live on this planet. Sometimes he's using it just as sort of a geographical location, like this planet, this earth, this world. And then sometimes he uses it to reference sinful values and systems and ethics and beliefs that are opposed to God. And that's what he's doing here in verse 15. He's using the world in reference to those sinful values and systems and and beliefs that are opposed to God. In verse 16, he fills this out a little bit more. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the desires of the flesh, every sinful impulse and craving and wants and desires that we have, the desires of the eyes where we see all of the glitz and the glamour and the toys that this world has to offer, and then the pride of life or pride of possessions that's putting your hope in your stuff, whether it be money or cars or houses or the latest and greatest gadget, whatever it is. Loving these things, being driven by these desires, that's what it means to love the world. To love these things is to be shaped by these things. To follow the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, pride of possessions, means those are the things that are shaping you. Make no mistake, the love of the world is shaping you. If if, if you are loving the world, if these desires are the things that are shaping you, make no mistake, you are being shaped, you are being formed by these things. If you love success, if you love wealth, if you love status, if you love pleasure and comfort. If you build your identity, if the things that you give yourself to are in pursuit of those things, that is what will shape you. You will be a person shaped by the pursuit of status and wealth and comfort and pleasure. If your hope is in what you possess, then your identity will be built in those things and you will love those things. They will become the thing that define you. And so let's get underneath some of this. Because there are a lot of things that this world offers that seem pleasurable. There are a lot of things that this world offers that seem like, hey, these are good things. And to some degree, look, it's okay to be successful. It's okay to make money. It's okay to experience comfort and pleasure in this life. But when those things become the thing that you give your life to, when those things are pursued in such a way that they oppose God, when you love those things above loving God, it becomes a problem. And underneath all of that, the veneer of success and wealth and status and pleasure and that you have everything going for you and life seems good and comfortable underneath all of that is some things that are very deep and broken. So let's, let's contrast this a little bit. So let's just, let's just back up and talk about sin for a second. Like dealing with sin, and if sin's too strong of a word, okay, I'll just back up and say, deal with your brokenness and your failure and your mistakes. Let's all be humble and admit we made mistakes and we sin. Like, dealing with those things is hard. Like, I don't care, Christian or non-Christian alike, it's hard to deal with those things. It's hard to look at those things. It's hard to acknowledge those things. And so in the midst of having to acknowledge those things, because we can't escape it, we're always haunted by our failures. We're always haunted by our sin. We're always haunted by the ways that we use people and harm people, and we do things that are destructive. We're always haunted by our guilt at what we've done, and perhaps the shame at thinking that we are so horribly broken and messed up that we can never be fixed. In the midst of being haunted by all of those things, what do you do with it? How many of us chase identities built on love for this world in order to bury sin? How many of us chase after the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life because we don't want to deal with our sin. We don't want to feel bad about ourselves. We don't want to have to look at the ways that we are broken. So we run after success to feel better about ourselves. I mean, if I'm successful, if I get enough money, if I get the house, if I get the car, if people are impressed by me, they won't pay attention to my sin. And I don't have to think about that. Anytime sin starts creeping up, I can just kind of throw out all my accomplishments and look, what I've done is better than my brokenness, I'm good. But what is that shaping you as? Well, what kind of person are you becoming in the midst of that? Are you becoming a person that experiences joy and freedom and love for others? Are you becoming a person who is actually set free from selfishness and set free from those broken things that you do in the ways that you harm people? can I lovingly push on you and say no? Like if you're trying to bury sin through the pursuit of desire, you're actually being formed more and more as a selfish person. You're being formed in selfishness because you're dealing with your brokenness by trying to gain more for yourself, by trying to impress people, by trying to pretend and perform. You're not actually confessing. You're not actually walking in humility. You're not actually opening up to the light and saying, hey, look, this is who I am, and I know that I'm a sinner, I know that I'm broken, and I need Jesus to save me. It's a form of hiding, it's a form of protecting. And you might not even be aware you're doing this. You might not even register that you're chasing after success and pleasure and money as a way to bury what hurts, as a way to bury what's broken. But this is what we do. We think this is what will give us satisfaction. This is what will give us pleasure and comfort. This is what will give us purpose and meaning. And we can go on down the list. We could also talk about relationships, how you engage people, how you use people. You see, Christ holds out a picture. God holds out a picture of, hey, come be in relationship with me. Come be loved by me. Come be accepted by me with all of your sin, all of your brokenness. You don't have to pretend, don't have to perform. Trust in what my son has done. And know love, no acceptance, no security, no identity. Know these things in a deep and powerful way so that you're set free to go love people. But when we pursue the desires of this world, when we pursue the desires of the flesh, we start to use people for our own ends. We start to use people as a means to make ourselves feel better, We start to use people to build up our own self-esteem, our own image. And so people become commodities. People become means to an end. And yes, we can still love people. You can still love your spouse or your kids or your family or your friends. There is still a form of love there. But make no mistake, that love gets twisted. And one of the best ways to see that is the moment that person doesn't get on board with your agenda. What happens? And so when we pursue the desires of the flesh, when we pursue, pursue the desire of the eyes and we want and we want and we want, the life that we're being shaped in, the love that is shaping us, is not something that is leading to life and joy and peace. It's not leading to freedom. And you may be here this morning and you're, you're, you're probably thinking, well, life's actually pretty good for me right now. Like, like, I hear you saying this, but man, success is coming. Money's coming. I, I have the comfort and pleasure that I want. And, and actually, my relationships are pretty good. Just give it some time. Give it some time. And also, what does John say in verse 17? All that's passing away. All that's passing away. Look, something is only as valuable as its staying power. Something is only as strong and as good to the degree that it lasts. You know why I love Victorian homes? Because they last. They're still standing after hundreds and hundreds of years. You think all these subdivisions in Omaha are going to be standing after 200 years? Probably not. There's a quality to them. And so the things that you're chasing, the things that you're going after, are they going to last? Is that success going to last? Is that wealth going to last? Are those relationships going to last? Is that pleasure and that comfort going to last? Look, sports didn't last for me. The music thing didn't last for me. There are plenty of things that we build our identity in that can actually be fine in and of themselves, but they're not going to last, and so they're not the thing that should be most be shaping us. And so things might be going well for you right now, but I guarantee sometime they won't last. The clock is ticking. At some point, God is going to put an end to it. And only those things that are built off love for him and the life that he holds out is going to abide forever, as verse 17 says. And so for those of you in the room that wouldn't claim to be a Christian, whether you're in a place right now that, man, you're recognizing that the desires that you've been chasing after, the life, the good life you've been chasing after is just making a wreck of things, or You're not in that place yet. And so, what I'm about to say, I hope, haunts you until you come to that place. But know if that's where you are right now, that Jesus holds up this image to you right in this moment. Like he's holding up for you forgiveness, he's holding up for you a relationship with his father where you can know love and acceptance. He's holding up for you strength to endure, strength to overcome. Strength to live this life for his glory and the good of others. He's holding that up for you right now, for you to see the glory and the beauty of that. And he's saying, follow me. Believe this. Come after this. Love this, because this will shape you in a way that is life-giving and full of freedom and will last for eternity. And so right now, even in this moment, this morning, you can turn from those sinful desires, and you can turn to Christ and know him. For those of you this morning that you're faking it, like Christianity to you is just a bunch of intellectual facts that you acknowledge, just like a geography fact or a math fact or a physics fact. Like, look, Christianity isn't about knowing facts. It's about who you love. Does God have your heart Has the gospel transformed you? Has the love of God broken in through the gospel of Jesus Christ, put on display on a cross, a savior who died for all of your sins, resurrected and reigning? Is that glorious picture breaking in and capturing your heart to where you say, I want to give my life to Jesus. That is what it means to follow Christ, to have your affections and your heart transformed. So stop playing games. Stop stop posturing, stop posing. God holds up this picture for you as well. And he says, choose this. Come after me, love me, follow me, experience my grace and be transformed. For those of you that are professing faith in Christ this morning, God holds this up to remind you who you are. Because life is hard. Life is painful. Like you know your sin, you know your struggles. You know the conflict you face. You know how Satan comes after you and tries to discourage you. You know what it means to enter into this dark world and try to shine the light of the gospel and and proclaim the kingdom of God and work for righteousness and justice and healing and freedom for people. And you know what happens when the darkness bites you back? See the identity that God holds out in front of you. Be captured by the love and the grace that you have in Jesus. See the forgiveness that you have and let that embolden you to confess your sin. See the love of the Father and that he has wrapped you in this wonderful relationship with the Trinity and find your rest and your comfort and your identity there and allow that to cause you to love other people and go in the strength that he provides. Keep fighting, keep proclaiming, keep confessing, keep working, keep pushing back that darkness because you're an overcomer you are strong. The word of God abides in you. This is who you are. And so church, let's be shaped by the identity Christ gives us. Let's let us love for God shape us over and above the desires of the world. And as we're being shaped, let us go into this world and declare an identity that is glorious and will last for eternity. Amen.